Matthew 8, 18 to chapter 9, verse 7. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. <clears throat> and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everyone, they, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. And if this is the first time you're here, we're very glad that you're here, and we do hope that we get a chance to connect with you before you head back today. And right now, we're, we're going through a sermon series on Matthew, and, and as you've just heard, today we're, we're looking at a rather long passage, and in this passage, there are a number of accounts, each of which could merit their own sermon, many sermons. But there's also something to say for taking all of these passages together. Matthew has crafted his story, he's crafted his narrative of the life of Christ in a particular way, and when we couple things together, there's themes that we can see pop out. 
themes about who Christ is and what he has done for us. So with that confidence, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. It's your word that creates the church, that calls the church, that collects the church, that crafts the church. And it's in your word that we meet Jesus Christ and that we see the beauty of your gospel. So, Father, I I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to this text and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would apply these to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So I want us to begin with a question. Are we at home in the world? The way that a tree is at home in the soil, do we feel at home in this life? The way that a fish is at home in the water, do we feel at home in this place? Is this where we're supposed to be? Is this where we are meant to be? Or or do we think that if we just had this thing, if only that happened, then finally we'd feel at home? However, no one knows how untrue this is more than the people who have actually achieved everything they set out to achieve. Consider, for instance, the the example of of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers. His his original team, they they wore t-shirts that said, 90 hours a week and loving it, talking about their work schedule. But we see his enthusiasm for what his company could actually do start to wane. It becomes more muted. Specifically in a 1996 interview with Wired, he reflects, we're born, we live for a brief instant, and we die. It's been happening for a long time. Technology isn't changing it much, if at all. Jobs achieved more than most of us can ever dream of. And if anyone should have felt at home in the world, it was him. But here we sense an admission. What we want from life and what life actually is, well, those aren't the same. And even if we get everything that we thought we wanted, well, we still don't feel at home. But it's not just us that don't feel at home in this world. Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son become human. God the Son living the perfect human life, the holy, natural human life. And what does Jesus tell us in this passage? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And there's many ways that we could could tie together uh, the many accounts that we find in today's passage, but I want to focus on this one, on humanity's alienation on our not having a true home in this world. Because if it's true for the most perfect, for the most proper human life, the human life of Jesus Christ, then certainly it will be true of us. Trees have soil, fish have water, foxes have holes, birds have nests. But the Son of Man, Christ himself, the most fully human person that ever lived, Not even he has a place to lay his head in this world. 
But does this leave us with, with that resignation that we sense in, in that quotation we looked at from Steve Jobs? No, it doesn't. And Christ makes this clear. Christ wants to make sure that we grasp this point. And so Christ calls us to account here in the most striking of ways. As a man is burying his father, Christ says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. And we might be tempted to soften Jesus' statement here. But I think what Christ is giving this man and what Christ is giving to us is a strongly worded smelling salt. Christ is trying to wake us up. Follow me or resign yourself to the dead. Follow me or be forced to live out these words. We're born, we live for a brief instant, and we die. It's been happening for a long time. Technology or romance or career or finances or beauty or status or reputation is not changing it much, if at all. And these are all good things. These are all gifts from God. Hear that. But to give ourselves wholly and fully to any one of these things is to be among the dead. They cannot take you home and they were never meant to. And so we must not soften Christ's warning here any more than we would hush a firefighter who's trying to yell to wake up a child in a burning house. Christ is here calling us to follow him. And this is very important because the human, the human creature should actually be the most at-home creature in the world. And that's because the human is a very special creature. The human is wholly unique in creation because the human shares in every aspect of creation, both the physical and the spiritual. C.S. Lewis puts this well. And I warn you that there will be a lot of Lewis in this, in this sermon, but um, you should never apologize for that. But C.S. Lewis says this, Man is a rational animal and therefore a composite being partly akin to the angels, who are rational but not animal, and partly akin to the beasts, which are animal but not rational. This gives us one of the senses in which he is the little world, or microcosm. Every mode of being in the whole universe contributes to him. He is a cross-section of being. We should be the most at home of all the creatures because we are a nexus, a microcosm, a meeting place of the two kinds of things that we find in creation, the two types of creation. We have bodies, so we're physical creations like animals, but we have souls, so we're spiritual, rational creations like the angels. However, if it's the case that we are not at home in this world, if we have no place to lay our head, then we would, we would expect to find ourselves alienated both from the physical and the spiritual. And in the accounts that we find in this passage, this is exactly what we are shown. But there's more, because we find here not only the perfect human, but in Christ we also find God himself. We find the one who has authority over all creation and the one who can one day make us at home again in this very world. And so I want to look at this passage under three headings. The alienation of the physical, the alienation of the spiritual, and the alienation of the human.
Let's look first at the alienation of the physical. In the first miracle that we find in this passage, Christ and his disciples, they come into the boat and they experience a raging storm. And remember that the disciples are fishermen. They are experienced sailors. They have seen their fair share of storms. But here they are terrified. They cry out, we are perishing. We get the sense that they've never seen a storm quite like this before. And this is important because the water, this is the place where they daily work. And even here, they do not feel at home. But notice how Matthew describes Christ's response. Christ rebukes the wind and the sea. And the word here, the Greek word that's translated as rebuke, could also be translated as reprove or censure. And so, why would Matthew tell us that Christ rebukes, reproves, censures the wind and the seas? Well, it's because they're not behaving according to their proper purpose. They're no longer providing a home for humanity, but, but, but working to kill the very creatures for which, for which they are meant to care. Because from the very beginning, one role of the physical creation was to be for and with humanity and the purposes that God assigned to humanity. For instance, Old Testament scholar John Walton, he, he says the following in explaining the creation account that we find at the beginning of the Bible. He says, the centrality of mankind is apparent in that in the seven-day structure of Genesis 1, all of the functions are established in relation to people. Walton gives the example of, of the first three days of the creation account that they all have to do with the basic needs, the basic human needs of water and irrigation, of land and soil, of seed bearing and agriculture. All things that go into the human production of food. And even the stars themselves are given to humanity to keep time to mark seasons and festivals and years. And this is not to say that this is the only purpose that the stars have. Likely, God has assigned them purposes far beyond the human life. But one of their purposes is to help make humans chronologically at home in the world. But something has happened. The very waters that were given to provide life have now come to take it. The waters have become a place of hostility, a place where we are likely to, to drown, to, to perish as the disciples fear a place of possible human death. And again, nature is a good and great gift to humanity, but nature has also become a danger to humanity. Even the stars themselves have lost their sense of hospitality. The philosopher Charles Taylor points out that in our interpretation of the world, in our sense of the world, humans are no longer charter members of the cosmos. What we now feel to inhabit is a kind of, of abyss. We, we see ourselves only as specks on a sphere in the silent, lifeless bigness of space. Our sense of the universe is, is a vast, indifferent expanse. And, and bigness isn't the problem. The problem is that the bigness of the universe no longer communicates to us the, the capaciousness, the roominess of, of something like a vast castle or, or palace 
but only a cold and dead immensity. We're only sitting on a kind of makeshift lifeboat amidst a, a vast and hostile sea of fire and rock and emptiness. This is at least very often the feeling that many of us have when we contemplate the cosmos. And so, yes, the seas that we now know are deadly. Yes, space as we now know it is inhospitable to human life. And we have to ask, how could it be any other way? Well, bear with me, and let me ask you something. Would you like it to be different? Have you ever looked longingly at the ocean and wished that in some way that it wasn't so alien, it wasn't so hostile, it wasn't so inhospitable? Have you ever looked into the stars at night and, and wished that somehow you could, you could join them be with them, even fellowship with them? Have you ever looked into a beautiful landscape and the animals there and, and felt the desire to, to have a, a deep connection with it all? A desire that, that you just can't articulate, but also one that you can't wholly shake off. And I realize that all of this might sound extremely ridiculous, but I think we've all experienced something like this. J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the author of, of The Lord of the Rings, he tells us that this very yearning is behind the fairy stories that we all do well to grow up with, whatever age we might be. Tolkien says the following, and this is a bit of a long quote, but it's a very good quote. Tolkien writes, There are profounder wishes, such as the desire to converse with other living things. On this desire, as ancient as the fall, is largely founded the talking of beasts and creatures and fairy tales, and especially the magical understanding of their proper speech. A vivid sense of that separation is very ancient, but also a sense that it was a severance. A strange fate and guilt lies upon us. Other creatures are like other realms with which men have broken off relations and see now only from the outside at a distance, being at war with them or on the terms of an uneasy armistice. And Tolkien, of course, is here referring to the Christian story. There has been a separation between us and the beast, between us and nature, and as Tolkien alludes to, this is the fall. When humanity sought to be more than a creature, when it sought to be God himself in God's place, we became, you might say, less than a creature. Or at least we no longer functioned in the world as God designed us to do. We came to live in a kind of creaturely exile, bearing the curse of creation that resulted from sin. But what are we to make of this desire to commune with the rest of creation? Maybe you think it's silly and, and wishful thinking, and, and to be honest, I'm not sure what this communion would look like. But I know that it's something that I desire, and I believe to some extent it's something that all of us desire, being human. And C.S. Lewis, well, he tells us to have a desire for something means that something exists to fulfill it. If I desire food, that tells me there is such a thing as food, even if I myself will never taste that food. And if this is a true desire, and it's one just as universal as hunger, well, then this logic of desire tells us that there does exist 
a restored communion, connection, and fellowship with the natural world. Again, Christ rebuked the wind and the waves. Christ reproves them for their hostility. And this hostility will not always be the case. How do we know? Because at a mere word from Christ, they are calmed. They're obeying their creator. And for the moment, they listen to the voice of Christ and offer to Christ and the disciples the hospitality they are meant to offer for all humanity. And again, at present, we, we don't feel fully at home in the physical world. So before you dismiss this as ridiculous, think about the taste that Christ gives us of what's to come. A world where even the raging sea welcomes us warmly. Do you desire this? Does this seem right? Is it something that you've always longed for? If so, there must be a reason. But again, we're not only physical creatures, but also spiritual creatures. We're creatures of both body and soul. And at present, we experience a similar hostility in the spiritual world, which brings us to our second heading, the alienation of the spiritual. When Jesus reaches the other shore, he's immediately met by two demon-possessed men who come from the tombs and are so fierce that, that no one dares to pass by them. And this too might strike us as silly. Can, can we really speak about demons in the year 2022? But again, before we dismiss this as nonsense, let's ask a question. How can you explain, for instance, and this is one of many, the shooting of small, innocent children in mass at elementary schools, and, and not just as an isolated event, but as a tragic trend. Are you really grasping this evil and how evil it is? And if so, can conditioning or improper socialization or unhealthy psychological situations really do justice to these tragedies? Ask yourself, do you have a real and substantial explanation for evil? As Columbia University professor Andrew Delbanco writes, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Delbanco, he's, he's not a Christian, but he's pointing out that, that the profound evil that we see, mere secular resources are not adequate to explain it. So you might call the demonic silly, but you can't say it's not serious. And what this means is that there are spiritual forces hostile to the human creature. While the seas attack our body, the demons attack our soul. And this is a sobering truth that there's spiritual forces bent upon our destruction. And we have to tread carefully here. Again, Lewis is, is helpful. Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is, to believe, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. Demons are more than happy if we dismiss their existence entirely. But they're also fine. They're also happy with the other extreme when everything becomes a matter of the demonic. 
And different Christian traditions are prone to fall into one of these two ditches. And looking at ourselves, Presbyterians are often prone to make the first mistake. We can tend to functionally ignore these hostile spirits. While other traditions are more tempted to make everything a matter of spiritual warfare, Presbyterians can tend to lose sight of this category entirely. I'm very much speaking of, of myself here when I say this. So then what's the takeaway for us? Well, remember that there are spiritual forces that are pushing you to evil actions, that are pushing for your destruction. And we are naive if we think that human agency is the only spiritual agency involved in the things that we do. And so as a church, let us remember and pray against the works of demons. Christ himself prayed just like this in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed for Peter that Satan not sift Peter like wheat. And if Jesus prayed such things for us, well, then we do well to pray such things for others and for ourselves. Christ is telling us that we are naive and unprepared if we don't take the agency of demons seriously. To again quote Del Banco, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. And so we as Christians must not forfeit the intellectual resources of the Christian tradition, resources that involve the reality of the demonic, as we seek to comprehend and combat evil in the world. And here too, as with the sea, we see hope. When the demons see Christ, they say, have you come to torment us before the time? And what this means is that some point, at some point in the future, the demons will face judgment for all of the evil that they've worked in the world. They will be stopped and they will be called to account. And who is it that judges them? Well, it's Christ. And as with the sea, here we see him judging them with only a word, go. He says, go, and they are expelled from the two men. And so here again, we get a taste of the new world that Christ is ushering in because Christ is not only the great creator of the sea, Christ is also the judge of any and all evil. And one day Christ will enact his perfect justice, punishing each and every demon. And on that day, our, our spiritual souls will be at home in the world. And perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps it will be like waking up in good health after the very worst of headaches. But there's one more alienation that we find in today's passage. We find a hint of this in the townspeople's response to Jesus' healing of the two men. The townspeople come to Jesus after this healing and they beg him to leave. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Get out of here, Jesus. You're not welcome here, Jesus. And what does this mean? Well, it means that at present, we're not only not at home in the physical creation, we're not only not at home in the spiritual creation, we are not even not at home in ourselves. Here, it's not the sea or the demons that are raging against Jesus. Here, it is humanity 
itself. Which brings us to our third and final point, the alienation of the human. Again, at present, we're not fully at home in the physical world, not fully at home in the spiritual world, and not even home within ourselves. We're not at home with the spiritual, physical kind of creatures that we are, the body, soul kind of creatures that we are, and we see this in the final account of the passage. A man is brought to Jesus, a paralytic on a bed, a man who bears the consequences of a cursed creation. His legs don't work as they should. His legs don't do what God has designed human legs to do. And so for this man, it's not just the sea that works against him. It's not just the demons that work against him. Even his own body is working against him. And he's not alone in this. One day, all of us will receive a diagnosis that brings us to a state like this. We no longer will feel the hospitality of our body. We will feel like unwelcomed guests in our body. We might even feel the hostility of our body as often these illnesses can be the body literally attacking itself. And this is strange because to be a human is to have a body. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he tells us that while the soul can exist, while it can subsist without the body, Thomas says it does not do so as a human. Aquinas even says that when Christ descended into hell, he did not do so as a human. He only did it as a soul. Because for those three days between Christ's death and resurrection, properly speaking, with his body in the grave, he was not a human. And the same is true for us when we die and our soul awaits the resurrection of the body. Only a body-soul composite is a human. And yet, we, all, we so often don't feel at home in our bodies. Our legs struggle to walk, our heads struggle for clarity, our lungs struggle to breathe, our hearts struggle to beat, our immune systems struggle to defend, our organs struggle for fertility, our bodies struggle for life. And because of all this, the man comes to Jesus, and he asks to be more at home in his body, to have his legs work like God designed legs to work. But Jesus here does something that's unexpected. He looks to him and says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so what's going on? Well, Jesus is helping him to get home, but not in the way that he thinks. The biggest barrier is not his body, but his soul. And what ultimately keeps him from his true home is his sin. Yes, the healing from paralysis is a very good thing, but it's not the best thing to seek. The healing that we should most seek is the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with this great God who is our greatest good. The man's greatest problem is not his legs, but his sin before God. This man comes to Christ in faith that Christ can heal him. And this is exactly what Christ does. But Christ does not at first heal his legs, but heals his very soul. By Christ's healing, the man's heart opens to love Christ as the God who forgives sins. And the man comes to place his faith in Christ, and his sins are forgiven. 
A dead soul is much more dangerous than dead legs. And the healing of the soul is a much more miraculous thing than the healing of our legs. Modern medicine can undertake the very good and very important work of healing the body, but only Christ can heal the human soul. And so we find a man who's not only alienated from his body, but also alienated from his very soul. And then what happens next? Well, the religious leaders see this and they hear this pronouncement of forgiveness and they call it blasphemy. They know that only God can do this. Only God can say this. But Christ has showed his authority over physical creation, over the sea. Christ has showed his authority over spiritual creation, over the demons. And now Christ shows his authority over us, over humanity, by forgiving our sins. Because if we still bore sins, then we could never truly be at home in this world, even if the raging sea was our servant and all of the demons had disappeared. We need the forgiveness of sin and Christ gives us a proof of his authority to forgive sin. He heals the man's legs. And this is a great good. And yes, this is a lesser healing, but this is a healing that we can see. It's a sign for us given by Christ that he really is the one who can guide us home. And this is exactly what Christ directs the man to do. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this man, for a time, will be more at home in his body, but this too will pass. One day he will again be confined to a bed. And the man will return to a, bu a building that he calls home, but eventually this home will be worn away by the elements, by the very same wind that Christ earlier calmed. And one day, just like Steve Jobs has warned us, this man will die, and he will leave the closest thing to him that he's ever known as home. So then, what does it mean in the fullest sense to rise, to pick up your bed, and go home? This is a call to resurrection. This is a call to wake the dead. We are among the dead, burying the dead. We, like the disciples, cry out that we are perishing. We, like the demoniacs, are living among the tombs. From the, moment, from the moment we are born, we are dying, and one day we will die. But Christ can guide this man to his true home because Christ has also taken this course. Christ has prepared the way. Christ has been our pioneer through death unto life. And why can Christ forgive this man's sins? Because Christ has experienced all of the homelessness that the curse of sin can throw at us. Christ's body suffered hunger and sickness and weariness and pain. Christ's human soul suffered cruelty and betrayal and temptation and sorrow and grief. And most of all, Christ suffered the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, the alienation that we deserve. On the cross, Christ suffered the physical death of the human body and God's judgment upon the human soul. Christ became alienated in both body and spirit. However, Christ rose again. 
Christ rose both body and soul. Christ rose never to die again. Christ rose never to not be at home in the world again. Christ now has a place to lay his head. And for those like the paralytic who come and place their faith in Christ, this is where Christ will guide you. One day, you will be completely at home in the world. One day, you will fellowship deeply with the physical world. One day, you will never suffer the attack of spiritual forces. One day, your body will be free of all corruption. One day, your soul will know and love God perfectly in the fullest communion of joy. One day, you will be at home in this world. And accepting Christ's return in our lifetime, we too will hear the words of Christ. Awakening, awakening us from our graves. He will say to us, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This life, this homelessness is only the briefest of breaths. Very quickly before you know it, you will hear Christ's voice bidding you home. And so please don't waste your time by trying to make this place your ultimate home. Your body will decline, your house will fall, your career will end, the culture's strongest opinions will change. To try to make your ultimate home here is building on the sand. It's trying to catch a mist. And so focus on calling others home with you. Invite them to their true home, and when trials hit you, remember that this present homelessness is only a mere instant. It and all of the unique opportunities that it offers to serve Christ will be gone in an instant. And so that also means that we should use our homelessness well because it will be gone before we know it. Love and work and serve to the best of your ability in all of the circumstances you find yourself in because these opportunities will vanish in a flash. Use your homelessness and its brevity well. And when you are rejected by others because of your commitment to Christ, remember that the townspeople also begged Jesus to leave. Despite all the good that he did there, he knew that was not his home. And so in closing, let's look to Lewis one last time. He, he ties these threads together well. In the last of the, the Chronicles of, of Narnia, Lewis says this of the characters. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And so let us look forward to that day, not long from now, I promise you, when Christ will stir us from our graves and say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And let us, like the children of Narnia, respond, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up. Come further in. Let us pray. 
God our Father, we thank you that you are the Lord who made our home good. Forgive us for our sins in the ways that we have brought about the curse of creation. But thank you, Lord, that through the work of Christ, that you have redeemed us, that you have redeemed the physical, that you have redeemed the spiritual, so that one day we can be fully at home in the world that you have created and restored. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.